0: Due to the graphic nature of this couple's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It was a cold January night, but the atmosphere inside 105 Herbert Street felt alive. The young woman, the dreamer, the poet, our heroine, she tried to be swept up in the gaiety of the evening, but she couldn't get past the thing that lingered between all of them. There was something hidden beneath every smile. A stifling sadness barely masked by forced laughter, a great anxiety lurking in each bit of petty small talk. The 20s had been hard on Texas, and the 30s looked as if it would be more of the same. The agricultural lives of their forefathers had crumbled after the war. Hordes of families were crammed into the slums of Dallas, forced into the tedious and filthy factory work of the city. The people at this party would be hard-pressed to break free of this situation. The poverty and squalor. The run-down houses and pathetic wages. The hunger and sickness. She was feeling this presence suffocate her and thought about getting up and leaving. And then he came in. He was a small man as far as men go, but his posture was rigid and commanding. He wasn't particularly handsome. His pointed ears stuck out a little too far from his head. His flat jawline and puffed out cheeks had a certain boyish quality to them, but his brown eyes glittered with knowing interest. His hair was parted perfectly at the center slicked back and matted down with great care. He wore a clean suit that hung freely, but fit him well. He looked over at her, then looked away. As the night went on, they seemed to be aware of each other, as though there was a gravity between them. And then he was in front of her, looking down with those brown eyes and confident smirk subtly etched from the corner of his mouth. Evening, he said. Name's Clyde Barrow. She eyed him up and down, completely unaware of the power that was between them. Evening, Mister Barrow. I'm Bonnie Parker. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParkCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim? Or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Today is our first episode on the notorious criminal duo, Bonnie and Clyde, a couple whose robberies throughout the Southwest were so popular nationwide that the circulating stories blurred the line between fact and fiction. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. A creature backed into a corner is the deadliest of creatures. In its desperation, it is unpredictable and ferocious. When there are forces that stand between that thing and survival, the only option is to fight its way free. Such was the way of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker's lives when they met for the first time in January of 1930. Both had long suffered under the debilitating arm of poverty. Both were desperate to assert their identity and break free of the confines of their economic class. Clyde often stood in the shop windows of downtown Dallas, admiring the latest fashions, dreaming about wearing a suit, even on weekends. Bonnie watched movies with a fixed intensity. She wanted to replicate the grace she saw on screen. She wanted to be a star. Little did she know, in less than five years, she would be as famous as the glamorous actors on the silver screen. But at the time they met, the pair's prospects were incredibly limited by the daunting hand of industrial change. To discuss Bonnie and Clyde without talking about the world they lived in would be a disservice. It was, in itself, a complex character, changing, alternating, and shaping in unpredictable ways. The 1920s are ingrained in American memory as a decade of social progress and economic prosperity. Dreamers were flocking to cities, skyscrapers were expanding humanity's reach into the clouds, jazz filled the clubs, and new mass-produced automobiles filled the roads. World War I opened the door for women's work opportunities, and in 1919, women were officially granted the right to vote. Yet. Underneath these layers of prosperity, the reality of poverty persisted. During World War I, the United States called upon farmers to produce in excess, both to help the war effort and to sell crops at a high cost to a depleted Europe. The result? After the war ended, there was an unnecessary abundance of crops priced too high. Farms took a major hit and many farmers, particularly in Texas, had to foreclose their property and move to the city to find work in the industrial factories that were emerging nationwide. The reality of the cramped slums and factory work in cities was a bleak one. For working class women in the South, textile mill jobs were about the only jobs that could be found. These had, like other factory jobs, long hours and low wages. In a 55-hour work week, the average textile worker would make $15.81, about $200 today. All this is to say that while glamour worked its way into the upper echelons of society, the people who filled the slums and worked the factory lines faced the same problems they always faced. Bonnie Parker had a difficult time accepting this reality. Bonnie's mother, Emma, felt as though her family was better than everyone. This sense of entitlement influenced Bonnie's youth and perhaps gave her a false sense of hope. Emma would parade her daughter around as a prized possession, taking her to church for show rather than for any religious purposes. Please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. David Elkind, a child psychologist at Tufts University, would call Emma's form of parenting instrumental narcissism. That is, a type of parenting where the mother or father tries to force the child into becoming a genius or exceptional in some particular field, This is not because the child displays incredible qualities, but because the parent has a misplaced sense of self-worth. This undoubtedly gave Bonnie unrealistic aspirations, aspirations that evolved from watching movies. Bonnie absolutely adored film. She loved the actors, their grace, and how they sported the most modern fashions and carried themselves with dignity. Bonnie herself was quite the performer. She would sing and act at her church and in school, reveling in the attention it would bring. Unfortunately, whatever hope Bonnie had to find a career on stage or in Hollywood was minimal at best. In 1914, when she was just four years old, her father died. This forced a newly single Emma to move her family to the impoverished suburb of Dallas known as Cement City. They lived there with Bonnie's grandparents who made a meager living working in Dallas's factories. Though she excelled at school, particularly in creative writing and literature, this did little to improve her prospects. As a teenager, Bonnie Parker's options were twofold. Find a husband or find a job to support herself. Bonnie chose the former and married the shockingly handsome Roy Thornton on September 25th, 1926, shortly before her 16th birthday. Bonnie's love was passionate, evidenced by the tattoo on her inner thigh that read, Roy and Bonnie. Needless to say, women getting tattoos in the 1920s was quite rare. But like all things in Bonnie's life, the relationship was volatile, intense, and short-lived. Within a year, the couple had split up, allegedly due to Roy's infidelity, And by 1927 bonnie was on her own she got a job waitressing and supported herself with the help of her mother for several years then in 1929 a series of misfortunes brought bonnie parker to the lowest point in her life that january her husband roy was incarcerated for robbery though the two were not together they remained married the news that her legal partner was in jail would have certainly had an impact on Bonnie, as it caused her to feel even more isolated. Then, in October of 1929, the Great Depression obliterated the American stock markets, causing a devastating tidal wave of economic hardship to immediately sweep over businesses across the country. This included the cafe Bonnie worked at, and in November, it closed. She was unemployed, separated from her incarcerated husband, and had little prospects of any kind to look forward to. But then one day, she walked into a house party in West Dallas and met a boy that would change her life forever. His name was Clyde Barrow, a smooth-talking, well-dressed 20-year-old with a passionate and energetic demeanor. Clyde was like Bonnie in many ways. He was a dreamer. He believed he could unshackle himself from the impoverished life of factory work. And he was tenacious in almost everything he did. Legal or illegal. The Barrow family was a victim of the 1920s farm crisis, so early in the decade, the clan was forced to abandon their farmland and move to West Dallas, Texas. They could not afford a house, so the seven children and two parents lived in a wagon in a campground. Clyde's father, Henry, was a junk man who hardly had free time. This means that the Barrows were at the bottom rung of one of the poorest neighborhoods in Dallas. But as a teenager, Clyde took to Dallas readily. He saw the suave put together nature of its upper-class citizens and longed to achieve their success. He could be more than his campground, he thought. He could be a man of substance. He thought he could penetrate the upper echelon through music, but learned the hard way that even pursuing your artistic passion came at a high price. In 1926, a saxophone cost $18, far too much for a 16-year-old Clyde's $1 a day salary. Clyde worked in various factories around Dallas and switched jobs frequently. Yet Clyde soon became blatantly aware of the reality that no matter how hard he worked, no matter which position he held, there was little he could do to escape poverty. The system was not built for people like Clyde Barrow to succeed. This is perhaps why Clyde turned to crime. Jennifer Sheehy Scuffington and Jessica Ray, an assistant social psychology professor and PhD candidate respectively, found that the stress caused by extreme poverty can alter our decision-making processes. More specifically, the anxiety formed when an impoverished person compares themselves to others may cause them to make decisions for immediate rewards rather than thinking through a decision that leads to long-term success. Clyde initially tried to overcome this by putting in long factory hours and signing up for the United States Navy. To his dismay, he discovered that an illness he suffered at an early age prevented him from ever serving in the military. Because these pursuits did not lead to instant gratification, Clyde became more downtrodden and desperate. All this is to say that at first, Clyde Barrow tried to make something of himself in a legal fashion. But the repeated failure started to make one thing more and more apparent. If Clyde wanted to break free of this vicious social constraint, he had one option, breaking the law. Unfortunately, despite Clyde's unabashed confidence, he was never that great at delinquency. In 1926, a 16-year-old Clyde was arrested for stealing chickens Poultry theft was a common practice among the poor youths of Dallas, as it was a fast and inconspicuous crime. It also had a minimal punishment attached, and Clyde was hardly reprimanded before being released. This ignited a series of arrests for petty crimes that put Clyde Barrow and his brother Buck on the radar of Dallas police. They would regularly pick Clyde up on suspicion or trumped-up charges, harassing him for merely being in the wrong neighborhood. It's this harassment that started to push Clyde toward the fringes of society. No matter what he did, whether legal or illegal, the powers that be would treat him the same. So Clyde continued his life of crime, robbing houses and stealing cars, until things hit an impasse on November 29, 1929. Clyde, his brother Buck, and a man named Sidney Moore, broke into a house in Denton, Texas. The police spotted the trio lifting a safe into the car and pursued them. With a stolen car and a trunk full of stolen goods, Clyde took off, instigating a high-speed chase. As fast as it started, it was over. Clyde crashed the car and went barreling out the window. He got up and took off on foot, leaving the other two to gain their bearings. Buck was shot twice in each leg and arrested along with Sidney Moore. Clyde heard the gunshots behind him, but knew that turning around was not an option. The arrests landed especially hard on Clyde because for a time, he wasn't sure if his brother was alive or not. When he found out Buck was sentenced to four years serving on a prison farm, Clyde's spirits weren't much lifted. At 20 years old, his prospects looked slim. His co-conspirator was in prison and he had police looking for him across miles and miles of territory. His family was losing faith in him and knew of his deviant nature. So this is how Bonnie and Clyde walked into the party at 105 Herbert Street on January 5th, 1930. He, with a recently incarcerated brother, and several outstanding warrants – she with an incarcerated husband and a recent stint of unemployment. But this cloud of sorrow and isolation was not so thick that it could prevent what was coming, because their meeting that night sparked enough electricity to clear away any darkness. It opened them both up to things they never thought possible and forever altered the cultural history of the United States. We'll hear about the impact of their meeting after this. Now back to the story. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow wasted no time falling into their brief and infamous relationship. After their meeting in January of 1930, they took to each other with the immediacy of new love, spending their first month in each other's company more often than not. They were two peas in a pod. Clyde came from poverty and dreamed of making music. Bonnie came from poverty and dreamed of making movies. They shared a natural energy and charisma and valued their individuality. They were both short he 5'6, she four foot eleven. And above all, they both were desperate for any positive change in their lives. Bonnie took Clyde to meet her mother, but Clyde, perhaps ashamed of his campground home, perhaps afraid of his mother's strict and terse judgment, did not reciprocate. Emma Parker, for her part, did not like Clyde. After all, he was the son of a junk man, the lowest rung on the totem pole of one of West Dallas's poorest neighborhoods. Bonnie's father, when he was alive, was a bricklayer, a man of substance. She deserved a similar type of gentleman as a suitor. But something about Clyde, whether it was his nice clothes or his charisma, did soften Emma. In her own words, he certainly was a likable boy, very handsome with his dark wavy hair, dancing brown eyes, and a dimple that popped out now and then when he smiled She even let Clyde stay at her house the February after they met. She made up the couch for him to sleep on. He was in perfect view of the front door when a knock came early the next morning. But Clyde didn't notice when it was opened and two Dallas police officers entered. The first thing they did was wake him up and taunt him about his brother, saying, if you got any rabbit in you, You'll run, like book. Clyde smiled and took his time getting up. He looked at the police officers with the ease of seeing an old friend and cocked his mouth into a dimpled smirk. He rubbed his eyes and said, Buddy, I'd sure run if I could. As calm as Clyde was, Bonnie was the complete opposite. She screamed and threw herself on Clyde, begging the officers to leave him. Seeing the love-struck young woman, the pair of officers felt sympathy, but said there was nothing they could do. Clyde was wanted in several counties. For his part, Clyde remained collected. He smiled and held Bonnie's arms and told her it was all all alright. He'd be out soon. They'd be together. It was the second time 19-year-old Bonnie Parker suffered a lover's incarceration. However, this time, she was determined to see things through. She talked about him daily and even went over Clyde's head to introduce herself to his mother. She regularly visited him at Dallas County Jail, swearing to the officials there that he would go clean if they just gave him another chance. Such was the way of Bonnie Parker. When she committed herself to Clyde Barrow, he was getting every bit of her. The passion the energy, the poetic drama. On February 14th, 1930, Bonnie wrote to Clyde in prison. In the middle of begging him to never commit a crime again, she said, I never did want to love you, and I didn't even try. You just made me. Now, I don't know what to do. The implication was clear. The love between Bonnie and Clyde wasn't a choice. It wasn't even fate, not really. It was an intuitive and sublime love, a thing that existed independently and settled on them both simultaneously. Whatever they did from here on out, whoever they became, they were in it, together. Clyde would get another chance, but it wouldn't come from the officials, it would come from Bonnie, In the midst of their visits and letter writing, Clyde had been transferred twice to face his various charges. Once to Denton, then to Waco, where he was wanted for seven different crimes. Clyde was given a relatively lenient two-year sentence on March 3, 1930, and was to be sent to Huntsville Prison, 90 miles south. Ironically, Clyde's brother Buck had recently escaped from Huntsville just a few weeks before, an event which Clyde due to his preoccupation with his own legal troubles, was completely unaware of. Clyde Barrow was deathly afraid of prison, and for good reason. Prison farms in Texas used inmates as a method of cultivating crops to contribute to the state's economy. Unfortunately, the regulations overseeing these farms were minimal, and the labor they demanded from inmates was brutal. Punishments from guards were encouraged and came often. The prospects of escaping when Barrow got to Huntsville would be dramatically lowered. He had to act fast, but he couldn't pull it off alone. Who else to ask but his new flame? On March 11th, Clyde proposed his plan to Bonnie. According to her cousin Mary, Bonnie agreed without hesitation. She took the map Clyde gave her, and used it to find the key to William Turner's house. Turner was another inmate at McLennan County Jail and privy to the scheme. The house was a mess, but Bonnie recovered the gun without too much trouble. Still, there was the problem of sneaking the gun into the prison, so she strapped it underneath her slip with two belts. No respectable man would search there. Bonnie walked up to the McLennan County Jail filled with 4 feet 11 inches of confidence. The guard, gruff and simple as he was, tried to turn her away. She had already visited that day. She couldn't see him again. But Bonnie smiled and placed a hand on his sleeve. She had to, just had to see Clyde again that day. If he just gave her just a few minutes, the jailer wouldn't see her for a long, long time. If all went according to plan hopefully never again bonnie went up the stairs visited for a minute then returned to the entrance where mary waited for her the two of them walked out the door went home and waited bonnie was alive like she had never been before the secrecy the excitement the anticipation it filled her with nervous beautiful energy This energy may have been tied in with Bonnie's case of hybristophilia, which is defined as an attraction, usually sexual, to a criminal. Bonnie displayed this attraction with her early marriage to Roy Thornton and later her relationship with Clyde Barrow. But when Bonnie chose to actively participate in Clyde's schemes, her desires became what is known as aggressive hybristophilia, a subset of the condition where the individual actively aids in the criminal activity. Appropriately, hybristophilia is known more informally as Bonnie and Clyde Syndrome. Bonnie's excitement made the wait almost unbearable, but the next morning, Thursday, March 13, 1930, they got the news from that morning's paper. Clyde Barrow and two other inmates had escaped. This marked a turning point in their relationship. For the first time, Bonnie Parker officially broke the law to help her lover. Not only was this more than she would ever do for Roy, and now linked her to Clyde in the eyes of the law in the same way they were linked emotionally. The success of the escape exhilarated Bonnie. It ignited her adventurous side, a type of adrenaline that begged Bonnie to listen to it, to follow it, to feel that way again. She talked ceaselessly about Clyde, how they would run away together. He wasn't really all bad. The system had doctored him, forced him to lash out, and he got unlucky here and there was all. He could go straight. They would live in the woods with just their love and bird songs as company. Whether Bonnie truly believed Clyde was capable of reform is up for debate. But from this point forward, something about the adventure of running from the law called to Bonnie, and she would do little to resist in the years to come. After several days on the run, Clyde wired Bonnie from Illinois. He was alright. He had to keep moving for some time. Whenever the coast was clear, he'd come for her. She'd done well. He loved her. Bonnie smiled at the praise, but her smile wouldn't last long. Only a week after escaping on March 18, 1930, Clyde was caught again in Middleton, Ohio. He was transferred back to McLennan County Jail in Texas, sentenced to 14 years in prison. Despite the severity of his new sentence, Clyde maintained his charismatic ways. He told officers at Huntsville Prison that he was only 18, was married to Bonnie Parker, and that his full name was Clyde Champion Barrow. His real middle name was Chestnut. Although it might seem insubstantial, all these lies had a goal. If officials thought he was younger, his work duty might be more lenient. And by listing Bonnie as his wife, he made it possible for them to correspond by mail. Bonnie, for her part, was less enthused about this latest development. She found herself a bit disillusioned by this most recent capture, especially since the papers were calling her boyfriend an idiot due to the botched escape attempt. But there was a type of inevitability about the relationship and before long, in early April, she was back to visiting him. Then, orders came down the ladder that changed everything. On September 17, 1930, Clyde Barrow was transferred to the Easton Prison Farm. At over 13,000 acres, Easton was something of a legend amongst Texas convicts. It was the state's first maximum security prison and was known for its ruthless work duty and egregious punishments. Guards would regularly beat and berate prisoners. Clyde later claimed that he saw men stuffed into tin boxes and left out in the summer heat. Sometimes they would flat out murder them, claiming the convict was trying to escape. The guard would collect the $25 reward for sabotaging an escape attempt without any sense of guilt. All the injustice Clyde felt he had suffered in his life, the rigorous monotony of factory work, the extreme poverty of the campground the unfounded harassment and arrest, it paled in comparison to what he witnessed at the Easton Prison Farm. As he watched the abuse of authority with an angry and keen eye, he cultivated a real hatred of the establishment. Clyde's charismatic exterior was beginning to harden. His boyish face began to hide a certain hatred that was rooted in a dark, unnavigable place. Clyde did find himself bonding with one of the inmates, a 19-year-old Eastham veteran named Ralph Foltz. The two shared a 10-hour wood chopping shift. Foltz told Clyde about the ins and outs of Eastam, what to watch out for, where to step lightly, how even if you were careful, a beating could come out of nowhere. Foltz, a previous runaway, was often subjected to these beatings, But when the guards wailed on him one night with furious kicks and struck him with the butts of their rifles, it was Clyde who offered Foltz a hand to stand up. Foltz knew that this behavior was incredibly dangerous. Now Clyde was on the guards' radar, since he was willing to help a runaway. However, it showed Foltz that Clyde valued loyalty over saving his own hide. This would, in turn inspire Fultz's loyalty to Clyde, something that he would get many chances to prove over the years. The guards took notice of this budding relationship and feared that Foltz's happy feat would affect the new prisoner. So, in late 1930, they transferred Clyde to a different camp. It was there, as Fultz would say, that Clyde was changed from a boy into a rattlesnake. In the new camp, Clyde met a six-foot-two, 29-year-old behemoth named Ed Crowder, a prisoner so large and so violent that even the brutal Eastham guards stayed out of his way. Crowder was serving a 99-year sentence for attempted escapes and had little to fear in terms of further punishment. When he encountered Clyde Barrow, he took to him in a horrendous way. Crowder began assaulting and raping Clyde on a regular basis. At 5 foot six and 140 pounds, Clyde could do little to fight back. He was routinely beaten and victimized by Crowder, only to be forced to hear him boast about it later on. Eastam had little by way of privacy, so other prisoners likely either saw the rapes happen, or at the very least, heard Clyde's screams. But the inmates offered no sympathy. Instead, they berated Clyde and laughed at him, called him condescending names, and offered not even the slightest hint of support. That is, until a prisoner named Aubrey Scally approached Clyde. Scally also hated Ed Crowder, and told Clyde that if in the unlikely event that Clyde could pull it off, Scally would take the fall if Crowder had an… accident. Scally was serving a life sentence for murder, so this proposition carried little risk. For Clyde, it was a chance, and a chance was usually all he needed. The cornered snake in Clyde was being born. He had suffered in this hellacious prison for over a year, worked tireless hours, received regular beatings, and lost his dignity. Worse, his sentence lasted another 13 years. There was a rage forming in him that perhaps would be the fuel for his actions in the years to come, the catalyst that left a trail of dead bodies. But on October 29, 1931, as Clyde made his way to the toilet in the middle of the night, He was surprisingly calm. His breath was deep and even. His hand gripped the lead pipe firmly. Like the buffoon he was, Ed Crowder followed Clyde into the shower area, believing that this was all too easy. Clyde didn't hesitate. He struck with pent-up ferocity. Crowder crumpled to the ground with a fractured skull. Clyde Barrow had murdered his first man. We'll be back with more about Clyde's transformation after this. Now back to the story. The incredible pain Clyde Barrow must have felt enduring assault and rape throughout 1931 was most likely exacerbated by his incredible loneliness. Not only was Easton Prison Farm extremely isolated, but Clyde lost his closest friend, Ralph Foltz, when he was forced to change camps. On top of that, Bonnie Parker's letters to Clyde had gotten less and less frequent throughout 1930, until December, when they stopped altogether. Now that the honeymoon phase of getting to know Clyde was wearing off, she started to see that the tragic situation was repeating itself. A 2017 study funded by the United States Department of Justice found that families and domestic partners of incarcerated individuals suffered both physical and mental health issues. That is, the stress of having a loved one in prison increases their amount of mental health diagnoses and physical ailments. This stress was perhaps the reason Bonnie began to distance herself. She found that sending him frequent letters and constantly worrying significantly decreased her quality of life. Emma Parker was enthused by this change. Her daughter found a new waitressing job and started dating a straight and narrow young man named Tom. Tom wasn't exactly anything to write home about, in fact, nobody seemed to say anything about him. But perhaps his simplicity was his best quality. Bonnie was now relying on herself for her own decision making. Her troublesome choice in men would soon become a laughable lesson of the past. But there was nothing laughable about what Clyde was experiencing. Toward the end of 1931, Clyde had gotten rid of his rapist without consequence. After Clyde killed Crowder, Scally repeatedly stabbed him and said the murder was his work. However, Scally was hardly reprimanded as a brief investigation reported it was self-defense. Unfortunately, Clyde still had to contend with the horrors of Easton Prison Farm. The late summer labor was getting so tedious that Clyde barely made it to the end of each day still on his feet. He felt aches in every place on his body. His bones groaned with every movement. He was haunted by nightmares and the ominous sounds of the prison quarters. And this would be his life. The only thing he had to look forward to Day after day, month after month, for the next 13 years. And like that, he snapped. In January of 1932, Clyde decided he was done. He somehow gained access to a sharp axe and brought it back to his cell. Clyde considered what he was going to do for a moment, but he didn't think too hard. Part of what made him Clyde Barrow was trusting that his instincts would lead him to the right place. So Clyde took up the ax and brought it down on his left foot, completely severing his big toe and partially cutting off the toe next to it. Clyde smiled as they took him to the hospital With an injury like this, they could never make him work on the Easton Prison Farm again. On January 27th, 1932, Clyde was admitted to the hospital. He was right. He would never work on the prison farm again. But not for the reasons he could have predicted. Just six days later, on February 2nd, 1932, Clyde Barrow got word that he had received parole from the Texas governor, he was free to go. Clyde was so thrilled he hardly noticed the limp that followed him out the prison's front gates. He was greeted by the news that his mother, Kumi Barrow, never stopped fighting for his parole. She pestered the governor's office for over a year until he agreed. This was not necessarily uncommon for the time, Prison overcrowding forced the government into granting an unusual amount of paroles for inmates that committed more minor crimes. Though Clyde's escape attempt made his case a bit more serious, Kumi's resilience assured that he was never forgotten. 22-year-old Clyde left Eastham with a terrible grudge. He absolutely detested the prison system and vowed that in whatever way possible, he would enact vengeance. The Clyde that emerged from the prison farm was a changed version of Clyde Barrow. He still had the charm and charisma that so characterized him throughout his youth. But now, there lurked something a bit more deadly. Something that knew that he never wanted to be boxed in, in such a way, ever again. And if he ever was threatened with that possibility, he would lash out with all his fury. Clyde went home to his family, and they welcomed him with open arms. He and his brother Buck were a pair of prodigal sons to the barrows. Yes, they broke the law and sinned in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, they were impulsive and passionate but they never forgot their family. Clyde limped into his home, said his hellos, then put on his nicest clothes and headed back out the door. Every one of the Barrows knew where he was headed. Bonnie was sitting on the couch with her beau, Tom. Emma Parker lingered in the kitchen, putting the last touches on dinner. She listened acutely to the silence, Bonnie and Tom never seemed to talk much, but they were more or less content that way. Then, a knock came on the door, and before Emma could make her way over, it swung open. There stood Clyde Barrow, or at least a part of him. He had a crutch under each arm, his cheeks were sunken and his lips were red and chapped, like they split open each time he stretched his mouth into a smile. Bonnie seemed not to notice. She leapt up from the couch and ran to him, stopping for the briefest of moments to turn and eye Tom. Then she threw herself into Clyde's arms and shouted, Oh Clyde, darling! And the two kissed. Even Emma could not help but feel touched. Tom took the scene in for a moment or two, then stood up and left the house. And just like that, Bonnie and Clyde were back together. She with a renewed commitment, he with ideas for a pointed vengeance against the establishment. Together they were about to embark on one of the most famous crime sprees in American history. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with Part 2 of Bonnie and Clyde. For more information on Bonnie, amongst the many sources we used, we found Go Down Together, the true Untold story of Bonnie and Clyde by David Elkind, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a 5-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy, production assistance by Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Crimes of Passion is written by Drew Cole. I'm Lainey Hobbs.